On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Cholo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me, please. Please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13, cut off, isolated in the middle of a city, as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. A war going on down here. We can't find the damn thing. A white hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. So the interns are working on what we talked about, right? The, the special memorial that relates to, to the episode we're going to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they brought the color samples down. I, I signed off on three, t- three different tones for the room. Looking very exciting. Um, okay. And, and, look, uh, look. What? Charles Cyphers is an unforgettable actor and needs to be celebrated more. So I think if we make this whole section at the studio, like I designed the Charles Cyphers, uh, you know, tribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's still with us. He's not dead or anything. But just yeah. we need to bring attention to him. So yeah, I, uh, I want to get some eyes on Charles Cyphers. More attention has to be paid. We, we have we have hundreds of thousands of visitors on our tours every year. And I think it'd be great to a great way to honor a legacy. Um with him yeah i'm ready i've got i mean i I have a whole folder of 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 cypher photos so i can just send that over to fedex kinkos get those printed up and we can just (laughs) start we can just start on the collage it's got to be done by the time uh the next halloween comes out because that's his big comeback and we we got to be there to support him oh all right make sure that's done well let's let's promise to do that and you know let's maybe we take a little (laughs) blood oath right now just in this little bowl (laughs) right here the t- the usual uh, entry fee for getting into Recon Cinema Studios. It's uh, yeah. the assault on Precinct 13 Blood Oath. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're going to do right now <laughs> on, on yeah. mic. Along with the coronavirus testing, it's the Blood Oath that goes with it. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, what the hell? Let's talk about it. Uh, you know, let's okay. talk about it now. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, wo- <laughs> welcome back to Reconcinimation, everybody. I'm John Diner. And I'm Dave Munchak. And this is the podcast that takes a look back on some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, we 
are we have today's gonna be a great show we have a special returning guest that we that has been on the show earlier this year for one of our my personal favorite shows ladies and gentlemen it's E.K. Wimmer from Laser Graves. <laughs> hey, guys. It sounds like you're having uh, quite the party getting getting started there with collages and color samples. Uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a huge event. Don't worry. It's, when, when, it's Once we, we, we christen this place, it's going to be huge. <laughs> hey. I think, you know, w- with, with the return of the next Halloween movie coming at some point soon here, we, we need to be ready for Charles Cyphers because this is... Uh, 2021 is going to be the year of Charles Cyphers, I, I predict it. <laughs> For sure. I saw that in, actually in a fortune cookie the other day. I opened it up and that's what it said. It's crazy. <laughs> it'll be pretty soon. It'll be Cyphers Fest uh, 2021, <laughs> which means it's all going to be John Carpenter movies all over again. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> and Major League. And, and Major League. <laughs> Everybody will have the haircut oh, from boy, Major see. League. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the weird, like, he's got that spiky hair out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but how's, uh, so tell me about what's going on with Laser Graves. It's uh, one of our favorite podcasts to check out and listen to. And you've had some interesting episodes recently, as always. Yeah, we've been kind of just chugging along and having some fun stuff. I, I do have to say, now that I'm returned <laughs> to the show, is... You know, I, I came on for the history of canon, which I also it was one of my favorite episodes too, and I, it was just it turned out really fun. Got a lot of good feedback. It was a blast. But we both decided to kind of um, divide and conquer on canon episodes after that. And mm. I'm just gonna lay it out since I have you guys here. <laughs> I feel like I took one for the team because you guys got to do Avenging Force, and uh, we did the Apple, which was okay. I'm, I'm gonna oh. yes, we we chose to do it. However, um, boy, was that a rough one to get through because we thought, well, we'll do a, a canon episode to tie in that week with the history of canon that we did on this one. And man, that was painful to get through. And yep, there you go. Uh, so I, I feel you, I feel like, did. yeah, we really we, we really took one there because I don't know if I ever yeah. want to watch that movie again, to be honest. But it was a blast to talk about. I'll say that. That was a great episode. If you haven't checked it out, uh, check it out. Find Laser Graves anywhere you listen to podcasts and uh, check out the episode on the Apple. You guys covered it really well. That's a super challenging <laughs> movie to kind of break down. But I love the, the the format of your show, you know, works for almost any movie, the way you guys just walk through it and and play with it. It's it's uh it's really fun, but kudos to you guys for doing that. That was uh that's a tough one. It was a weird one. You know, it's funny because we try I, as I mentioned in the last time I was on is I I'm, I'm a big VHS collector. And I try and have the movie that we cover on VHS as well. And that's one of the only ones we don't own. And in all honesty, I don't really care if I ever own it. <laughs> wow. That's, that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. <laughs> so you, you, wouldn't turn, you wouldn't turn it away as a gift, but you're not going to seek it out as a VHS. Yeah, if, if I stumbled across it in a thrift store, I'd be like, uh, sure. But I'm not going to go out of my way to find it. Although I did watch That's Assault right. on Precinct 13 on my VHS copy, which I found out is um, not in the best shape, and it was pretty hard to watch. And then I rewatched it, 
uh, streaming it. And wow, that's a different movie when you can actually see what's happening. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I remember the first time I saw it was was the VHS copy. And I remember it being like, ooh, like this is this doesn't look good even in the late 90s. <laughs> no, it's really dark. <laughs> And that's actually going to be the movie we're talking about today. We are uh, we're welcoming back John Carpenter to to Reconcinimation, mm-hmm. who we covered. I think in year one we covered both Escape from New York as our debut episode and Halloween, mm-hmm. and then actually the the newer Halloween. A quick look at that as well. But uh, we're going to go back to his second feature, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. So I'm very excited about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, EK, when was the first time you you saw or remember hearing about Assault? I had heard about it, you know, I think just kind of throughout. I can't even pinpoint the first time. But it was one of the later Carpenter films I saw. It probably wasn't until college because I had already worked through mm-hmm. most of his catalog, you know, most of his, his filmography by the time I got to college. There were a few ones that I hadn't seen, like Village of the Damned. I had never gotten around to seeing uh, I think actually that was probably it. Oh no, Starman too was one that I had I had never watched either, and mm. and Assault and Assault I had always heard about as being this like really pretty amazing film, and so I rented it, watched it, and I was honestly blown away because even though he's this powerhouse with these films that come later, like you know The Fog and Escape and The Thing and all that, Assault is really an understated classic. It's simple but it's well done. And and then once I saw it, I, I instantly really enjoyed it. And then I just I watched it, you know, over and over after that. And I, I don't think it's one of those films that even that seems to get better every time I watch it. I don't know. That's at least for me. What about you guys? When did you first see it? Let me just quickly just let me just quickly because then you know, this is very quick. Uh, I hadn't I hadn't I wasn't aware of the movie until the remake was made in the early 2000s. Uh, oh. So that and that had like a big, you know, big studio push. And then it was like, that's oh, that's that's a remake of a different film. So that was probably the first time I had even heard of it. First time I've seen it, probably in the last week. So that's all I got for you. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> well, oh, wow. Well, that's good because that's the angle. You know, that's our show is that you're coming from the point of view of having recently seen some of these movies. Whereas, sure. uh, you know, I, I'll have seen these, you know, many years ago and. and Love a lot of them, but yeah, um, of course, yeah, that's interesting. I forget that they even I, when they started remaking all these movies in the like mid two thousands, it was like this and the Halloween remake and Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw. When they started remaking all these, I went on a huge boycott. Like, I will not watch yeah. these new movies. <laughs> like, re- when you're remaking something that didn't work, it's one thing, but. You know, even like Karate Kid, like why remake something that is so good the first time? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's so, kind of constant, yeah. constantly I come to that question of what was the point of even thinking you should remake it? There's so many movies like that. I mean, did you guys see the remake for, uh, what was it, Point Break? <laughs> no. Did you ever see No. I was did curious. they do that? Yeah. <laughs> they sure did. Oh, that's right. A couple of years ago, right? Yeah. Or, you know, even better one, Total Recall. I was like, why would you ever remake that? That's so weird. I went to see that in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) From what I recall, it it doesn't even take place on Mars, does it? 
No, it takes place on Earth, and it's it's it tries to adhere to the book more more than the original film does, but okay. it's still like it does. It's got some reference to the film, like so, it's like loosely like connect like you know loosely like remade of the of the film. But no, it's like it's its own thing. It's just taking. It's just taking the name and doing something fresh with it for like for audiences, really. Um, and I think even that's what Karate Kid remake was because it was Jackie Chan teaching the kid kung fu. So it wasn't yeah. it wasn't about karate. It was about kung fu. It's just called the Kung Fu Kid. Then, like, I don't know what, what are you guys doing. <laughs> well, so many of these are such obvious money grabs. You know, it's just studios trying to capitalize on a marketable name, and it, there's really nothing to it beyond that there's no real reinvigorated story or a new spin that really works it's just yeah. it's just them trying to capitalize on the name value yeah, yeah i would agree so. yeah and assault is an interesting remake because i, I don't know I, I have strong mixed feelings about that as you said I, I feel like it's one of those films that didn't need to be remade in the first place i don't understand why somebody got that bright idea but then also the choices that they made in the remake versus the original uh, were questionable. And so, I mean, if -hmm. we get into that later, I think that would be an interesting discussion, but they changed a a few uh, just really obvious things that I don't think should have been changed. And that's okay. That happens. You know, people got to take risks. They got to do what they, they got to do. But assault to me was a a simple little film on, on nothing budget it managed to achieve something great and uh, have some cult status. And they, I feel like it's one of those things that just should have been left alone. But I mean, even the fog was remade. The thing was remade. I mean, they've, they've all been, they're get, they're just chipping away at them slowly. Well, they, they've had, well, part of it is because Carpenter movies are so great. So, and there's such the cult status of Carpenter, which I want to talk about in a little while here. Uh, you know, the cult status of his movies in general has really grown over the years and his reputation has really, you know, gotten so much stronger. Yeah. Um, there's so much love for him now that I think there's a lot of, you know, they see a lot of marketing like, you know, do we do a sequel to some of his stuff? Do we do remakes? You know, now they're this big trouble in Little China thing that's been talked about for years is so maddening to me. The thing is the one that I'm like kind of okay with because it's technically not that remake. It is a prequel. And I think it it does kind of it does pretty much work. And I, I think I mean you saw it, right? Mm-hmm. Right, EK? Yeah. I mean, I think they did a good job with uh, with nailing the details that set, you know, leaving everything leaving the table set for, for Carpenter's film. Right. Um, you know, the CG effects were a problem and, you know, some other some other story points. But I, I basically like the movie, you know, but it was. It didn't really do anything new that wasn't done in his. Sure, I, and, and I, I see the irony. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I just want to say, but, like, his, th- his The Thing isn't original either, though, right? I mean, so. <laughs> right, yeah, right. That's, exactly. That's his own take on something. But and it's even ahead, not about, is. like, well, I was going to say that. I was going to say the irony is that his was a remake as well. I think the difference is, yeah, letting up a precursor to what his thing would be. That's cool. I, I appreciate that as well. But it's just more about letting things kind of just exist in their own universe and just moving on and not having to constantly revisit things. That That's where it gets a little mm-hmm. little tricky for me anyway. I, and 
you know, but a Carpenter spoke on this. I've heard interviews with him and they ask him about it because when uh, Rob Zombie did the, the remakes for Halloween, you know, they asked him about it and he was like, I don't care. I mean, you know, just do what you want. It, I feel like he's so com- yeah. he's so confident with what he put out there that um, he he embraces the idea of people wanting to redo it because he doesn't feel like it really competes with his. And I, I would agree to that. I don't think it, it ever does. Well, he's so he's really smart about the whole thing, and he doesn't let his ego get in the way of all that. Like he knows how good many of his films are, and they've stood the test of time at least, you know, if not just grown and grown. Um, and he knows that anyone trying to capitalize off that is just not going to. It's not going to compare. Where did you Where did you stand with the newer Halloween film? So. Well, okay, so the Rob Zombie ones, I um, I'm, I'm not gonna. No, forget those. Yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna. <laughs> don't even talk about. Those. Not even gonna talk about those. I had a huge issue with those, but actually, the remake, yeah. I loved it. I'm gonna just come out and say it. Like, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fresh. It was well done. It was fun, and it just felt good. Like, I, I remember. I went in a little skeptical because like you, I'm also, you know, I hear the word remake or reboot and I immediately, my flag goes up, but I, I went in, I watched it and I walked out being like, damn, that was really actually pretty good. I know some people who hate on mm-hmm. it, but I feel like the people who hate on it, um, maybe just already had their mind made up that they weren't going to accept it because ultimately it was really well done. I thought it, it was cohesive. Um, it felt kind of classic. I love that they brought Carpenter back for the score, which was really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he freshened mm-hmm. it up a little, so it's got a it's got that classic feel, but it's got like a a new little shine to it. And no, I'm a, I I am a fan of it. I enjoyed it, and I am actually looking forward to the other two that are coming out. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of yeah, where David. We saw that together, right? Yeah, where we we ended up going together and then recording a a short a shorty. Consinimation uh, episode uh, as as a re- insta response to the film, and uh, I think generally we were over. I mean, I I I look back uh, at that and like I really enjoyed that film. I thought it was great, and I thought it was a worthy, like, um, you know, a worthy like re sequel or whatever uh, to the whole franchise. Uh, it's clearly made by by these guys who love the original material and Mm -hmm. brought a new fresh take on it. So I think, yeah, overall we were pretty positive on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually hold, I've seen it a couple times already and I hold the same opinion. I like 80, 85% absolutely love it. There's so much of, uh, you know, that they did capture from, you know, not as good as the original, but definitely in the same vibe, same vein, you know, similar situations and homages, the one thing that held me back was that doctor storyline, the evil doctor, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, evil psychiatrist, uh, not psychiatrist, but whatever. Um, that was like straight out of Halloween, you know, five, five Halloween six territory, uh, which was not good. So, but besides that, I loved it, and I'm definitely excited about the new one. So, so that was kind of an exception. But oh, I was going to say the way I judged it is rewatchability, and I would say out of all the Halloween movies. You know, the first three I will rewatch any day of the week. But after that, it's a little dicey. And I would rewatch the new one 
um, with the first three any day of the week. And I think that that says something is, yes, it has its flaws and there's things that I would maybe change. But if I'm willing to just pop it in, if somebody said, hey, do you want to watch this? And I wouldn't argue it. That says something about Mm -hmm. if it um, succeeded or or failed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I I can get into Halloween four as well. I'll throw that in there, but uh, beyond that, I'm I'm out. <laughs> you need There's to something... revisit Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw that in the theaters. <laughs> um, there's something I think there's something about Carpenter's films though, because it's like they're they seem very especially his earlier work. It's like simple concepts you know like you could see like it's really a german of i of an idea that he takes and that he doesn't have to like layer a thousand things on top of it like he's very straightforward mm-hmm. with the story he wants to tell and in the way he wants to tell it and with the right amount of tension and you know and the, and people on screen so i think there's something about that that people it's almost like it's it's almost like when you watch the the, the his films and if you're a fan you can take the log line and you're like, if you're a creative person, like you kind of want to see more or see somebody else's version of it. Or if you're like a creative, like you want to do it yourself. So I get the, like, I get why he's sort of ripe for the pickings for like remaking stuff, you know, take, take his stuff because it's at a core. It's like, there's good ideas there. And, you know, on top of it being bankable or marketable or whatever, um, you know, like these discussions of like, you know, the, the reboot and remake sequel culture that we have, like, you know, part of the reason like Star Trek, for example, like they, you know, they took some time off with making shows uh, and movies in recent years, but now it's on a resurgence. But, you know, the people making this stuff are generally fans to begin with. So like everybody wants to like put their mark on something like that they love that already might have right. a, a, a thing. So. And, you know, and for people who like want to be like just an audience member, there's certain expectations. But when you're actually like, I don't know, making it yourself, I mean, that's the story they wanted to tell. And whether or not it succeeds, you know, as long as they give it 100 percent, I mean, like, go for it. Like, keep remaking the stuff like it doesn't it doesn't make this the other stuff I love go away. So, like, go for mm-hmm. it, you know, like commenting like well they could have they could have done this star trek show like this or they could have done it like that or i think i wanted the next generation and i don't really think i like discovery that way it's like well you can always watch next watch next generation like how many times can you do an iteration of a procedural show you know like the, right like so it's like everyone's gonna do something fresh and i think that's kind of like the thing with like i said like carpenter has got some great strong ideas that are very kind of simple um, but are ripe for like explosion, like go, go crazy with it. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point too, because not only are his films, uh, you know, very basic and you can, you can take them and rework them. But the the thing is that no matter how you rework them, they won't compare to the Carpenter original because there was something about it. So they're, they invite yeah. this remake. And what's what's remarkable about this is this extends into his film scores because he composes most of the music to all of his movies, too. And his his music is identical. It's as a composer, people listen to John Carpenter's music and they go, well, that's pretty simple. I could actually do that, too. And they can. And he invites it. The difference is nobody will ever replicate his film scores, even though they try, even though they are so Mm -hmm. simple. It's 
I don't want to be blasphemous, but it's almost like the Beatles, where the Beatles' genius was being simple and everybody could sing along. But the difference is just because you can sing a Beatles song doesn't mean you can write a Beatles song. And I think that that's what Carpenter is like that, where he keeps his stuff so basic and so simple and just lets it speak for itself that it invites people to replicate it, but they can never do it the same way. And I think that that's pretty hard to do as a filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah, simplicity is really the key to success for Carpenter. I mean, you look at look at his body of work and, you know, his best films are very straightforward. And the ones that suffered were the ones that, you know, he's also a filmmaker who does a lot more with less. Mm -hmm. You know, the movies where he had a smaller budget, Mm -hmm. where he had more control, less studio interference. The more he lost those things, the worse his movies got. And the less passionate he was about it. I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is like the big example of, you know, I think that was his, at the time, was his biggest budget uh, for, you know, Fox. And they were very involved in his process and it all, and then mismarketed the whole thing. And, you know, he lost his whole, the, the, the failure of that movie, at least initially, totally, almost, in a way, drove him out of the business. I mean, he wanted... He just had wanted nothing to do with studios. And, uh, you know, of course, that movie's uh, shelf life afterwards exploded. And and there's like with much of his work, there's so much love for it now. But uh, it didn't help that initial box office. And and, you know, I don't know. I think it's the best. I, I, I wish he were making more movies or had made more movies. But I understand that, like, if a studio is going to be all over you and be on top of your budget and on top of your story ideas and trying to, you know, change your casting moves that if they're not going to let you do the movie you want to do. Don't just phone it in and do it. He just, he, you know, he's a real rebel that he, he would, he just stopped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he just chose not to do it at all. Hmm. Hmm. That's integrity. Which, you got to respect that. Yeah. Yeah. And also sure. the the interesting thing about his early films when he didn't have a budget to work with is I was I was watching an interview with him and he talked about his approach was if you don't have a lot of money, the way you make it look bigger and stretch it is to extend the scenes. So instead of cutting a lot and trying to fill a lot of space, you just let the scenes breathe for long periods of time. And it, it's more affordable that way because you're not having to change things, lighting sets, all that kind of stuff. You're just letting these scenes stretch. And when you think about back to back, you know, you've got uh, Assault and Halloween and The Fog. All three of those have these really long, drawn out scenes before he starts mm-hmm. getting into these more complicated movies. And I think that that was really smart of him was he he took what little he had and he made the most of it. And that, I think that's when he was at his best. I would I would strongly agree. Because just comparing Escape from New York to Escape from L.A., it's like take the basic premise, throw more money at it. Why is this not the same movie? And it's because he wasn't letting it breathe like he did in the early days. At least that's my take on it. Yeah. I mean, you look at his films all the way, I would say almost all the way through maybe Prince of Darkness, where that where they have that pacing where you have time to really you know kind of chew the scenery see your you know feel your characters feel the energy you, they don't you know movies for quite a while now haven't been cut like that you know it's always uh, you see it a lot more on TV but even, but in features as well cut 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 it's always 
fast paced. You're just moving around. You don't have time to digest. You don't even in a lot of films, you don't have time to even really get your bearings for where you are in the physical space of a, of a, of a set, you know, mm-hmm. whereas here, like you get assault, maybe even the biggest example of it, of that slow pacing, you know, the first half of the movie is really just very methodical. And it does feel like, I think he even says it in the audio commentary that he was just dragging it out to kind of extend that running time and get, you know, get the film longer, but, but it works. I mean, he knew what he was doing. But it's also that play on his inspiration, which we'll get into also, but one of the biggest inspirations for this was um, Night of the Living Dead, and it does have that feel where it's mm-hmm. this long, drawn-out setup where you just feel this claustrophobic um, approach to filmmaking where you only have one location and things are creeping towards that location versus you creeping out into the world to find new locations. I mean, I think that that's really interesting about assault is it just, it allows the viewer to feel like they're trapped with the central characters. And that's, it's really mm-hmm. understated, but, but pretty brilliant. Yeah. that The pacing of the film is really, really well done. I feel like it, um, and you've got a lot of, I don't know, you've got a lot of Carpenter, the, the common Carpenter themes kind of all over this movie. But that, you know, the way <clears throat> the four, was it four? Three storylines kind of converge about, what, maybe 30 minutes into the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they converge finally and everyone is at one location together. And it's all like, you know, it's all an element of chance, really, <laughs> that this story even even happens. Because if that father didn't run into that police station, right? You know, none of the rest of this they wouldn't they wouldn't there would be no assault. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, they're, it's a it's a confluence of all these separate things that come together, and then creates this highly dramatic, high like high uh, tension scenario. That yeah, I mean, fr- from the opening of the movie, I'm like, oh, this is kind of like a horror movie, and it continues along that vein and then once they're trapped in there i'm like oh my god this is this is like this is classic like they don't even have like even the the gang members aren't like identifiable at that point they're just all in shadow and you don't know when they're coming and it's it's intense so uh yeah yeah and all it takes is these desperate disparate characters to like come together at once well Um, and and carpenter really he he really works well with limited space and confined space because some of his best movies like assault and the fog escape from new york the thing i would even say one of yeah. one of my favorite favorite carpenter movies that often gets overlooked but i think is probably one of his best films he ever made is in the mouth of madness and why i like that mm-hmm. is because you're trapped you're literally trapped you you try and escape and the town brings you back into it. And I think he works really well when he closes the space and doesn't let you leave. Uh, I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's really good. And it's all starts here. I think assault, even though dark star was his first film, it was a student film assault. And he says this himself is his first real film. And you have the groundwork yeah. for what would become many reoccurring themes, including the classic Carpenter male lead, which is, you know, Napoleon in this case. Yeah. Yeah. But he becomes Snake and he becomes, you know, um, the guy in Ghost of Mars. Like it's all it's all the way to the end. You have this guy 
who he says was based on his best friend in high school and then a little autobiographical as well. But Assault is who introduces the Carpenter guy that we all know when we think of a Carpenter film. It's pretty interesting. I mean, this is this is really this is the the, the beginning of it all. Yeah, he's he is uh, Darwin Justin. It really is the precursor to Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, because Kurt Kurt would become his muse, sort of, and <clears throat> you know he uh, well, like Jamie Lee was too, but I feel like more Kurt than her. Uh, you know, you could almost see, I could I could buy a Kurt Russell uh, Keith David combo here, as uh, you know, in later years, if this were done in the eighties, <laughs> I feel like he might have gone that direction. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could see that. But thematically, too, I mean, you know, you've also got that, that David, like you were mentioning, that the faceless enemy, which mm-hmm. is, you know, you would see immediately after in Halloween. Yep. You know, the, 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 what's the name of the gang in the film? I just forgot oh, their name. Oh, I did too. They've got a really Sweet cool Thunder. name, too. Yeah. Sweet yeah. Thunder, yeah. Sweet, Street, Street, <clears throat> is it Street Thunder? Street, Street Thunder. Thunder, Street Thunder, yeah. Thunder. What did I say? Sweet? sweet. I said, did I say well, sweet I said, I said sweet, too. <laughs> well, that works, too. That's that's going to be our gang. That'll, that'll be our gang. I, I want to be on the Sweet yeah. Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> we are. That's our name, the three of us. Sweet, sweet Thunder, Thunder now. That's sweet it. Thunder. And we all, we all carry around those uh, switchblade combs instead of real switchblades. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh, here comes Sweet Thunder. Yeah, straight out of Monster Squad. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, but you know they, they the gang represents Michael Myers. It's the same thing. Yeah. You know the that that onslaught of the faceless enemy with our heroes who have to band together from a you know confined location. Uh, that that's you're going to see that over and over and over throughout all of Carpenter's work, really. And when he doesn't use all of those elements, is where you start to we start to get away from what works with him or he gets away from. Yeah, I would agree. But his best stuff all kind of features that. Um, Yeah. uh, Let's talk a little bit about um, how the movie kind of came to be. And we, you mentioned dark star EK. What, what's uh, what are your thoughts on that film? Have you seen that anytime recently? I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I I have it. Um, I've got the, the V V of course you got the copy of it, (laughs) but it's, you know, it's for what it's, what it did and who was involved, I think, is really interesting. It's an incredibly important film, even though it might not seem like it on the surface, because these people went on to do big things. But I think that uh, Dark Star, it was him making the most with what he had around him. It was his friends, mm-hmm. other students, you know, he, and he talked about the filming of Dark Star was he would film a scene and then come back and edit it and then go out and raise money to film the next scene. And then it would basically get patchwork together. Whereas assault was all shot back to back in like 30 days straight. And he had never done that before. And so I think yeah. with dark star, it was laying the groundwork, but he didn't get work after that. What had happened was he started writing and he wrote, you know, the eyes of Laura Mars, which is actually a really cool film. Yeah. Um, and then that got, yeah, that got is. picked up, but there was this investor who had seen dark star and said, I, I do think you could do something. And, and John really did want to be a director. And so he had to come up with something new and that's where assault came from. But dark star for me, um, 
should never be discounted in in his filmography. It absolutely deserves to be his first real film. I don't think you should ever overlook it and say Assault is his first film because without Dark Star, we would have never had John Carpenter. He he learned things on that film that he would carry with him throughout the rest of his entire career. Absolutely. I mean, his work is very much one thing leads to another. So if you, you know, if you talk about the success, the massive success of Halloween, well, you got to look at what how he got to that point. And, and it does. It all starts with Dark Star and his, you know, I guess his early kind of semi partnership with Dan O'Bannon, who we we covered here when we look back at Return of the Living Dead yeah. <laughs> a few years ago. But um, and you can dig that out of the archives at www.reconcinemation.com. Uh, but, you know, th- that like you said, that that start and stop nature of the making of that film was really not the overall picture of how you would make a film. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, finally getting to, I think it was a classmate of his, J.S. Kaplan, who, you know, who was some kind of classmate at USC, uh, who approached him and after they, after Dark Star was completed and, you know, wanted to, wanted him to write, you know, a couple of scripts, one of which he would, would direct and then yeah he wrote eyes of laura mars they ended up selling that to barbara streisand uh who herself would not end up making that movie Mm -hmm. but uh she bought it from him and then he he was also writing assault and uh you know they partnered up with another another producer and and the budget was like a hundred thousand dollars and this was going to be his real okay this is how you know, you. I guess he learned how to shoot a movie and some of the mechanics of it on Dark Star, but then this is how you like schedule a movie start to finish and how the entire journey of filmmaking is done. This is where he and he talks about like how he learned you know so much just with camera work on this movie. Yeah, well, and I would liken this to another director who's a contemporary of his would be David Lynch because Eraserhead, his first feature. It took him like five years to make that movie because he was just piecing it together. Mm-hmm. And then once he did, it allowed him to follow it up with The Elephant Man, which was a straight up, you know, major picture. And so you have these guys who are passionate about filmmaking. And even though their first films took forever to, to figure out how to make, they showed that they were competent enough to go on to do a follow up. And it, it just took one person to believe in them, and then they, they were off to, you know, to the races. So I do think it's interesting with all these guys from this era that their first films were really fumbling ar- along for opportunities, um, but they got, them, mm-hmm. they got them made regardless. That's what's important is that maybe it took, you know, four years, five years, but it, it was made, and that's what opened the, the door. And with Assault, uh, John Carpenter said, you know, he didn't really give it too much thought he wasn't you know out to try and win any awards or anything like that he just he was writing that's how he was making his money at the time was uh he wasn't getting paid as a director he was getting paid as a writer but he wanted to direct and this came along and he said yes because this was an opportunity to get back in the directing seat so he would do it and i think that that was really smart versus saying like no no no, i'm gonna wait for the perfect project or something like that yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, like you're saying, don't forget, John Carpenter is technically a member of the Hollywood New Wave. You know, he came up basically the same time as 
the Scorseses and the George Lucases and the Coppolas, but he's like the rebel <laughs> to those rebels. He's like the super rebel. Yeah. <laughs> like he didn't, he, he was always separate from them. He was never considered part of their group uh, on any level. He was always, he's like the ultimate indie filmmaker to me, kind of like Lynch, yeah. you know, that makes sense comparing the two. Yeah. That's why I would do that is that, that those two guys had to kind of uh, carve their own path. And what would end up happening with carving their own path is that um, cult following that follows behind them because they didn't have that support. Mm -hmm. They had to build that support. And in doing so, I felt like they were maybe willing to take more risks because nobody was believing them in it, believed in them anyway. So why not just make the film you want to make? And um, the end result, because Assault, when it came out, uh, was not well received but it built a cult following afterwards, like many of his films. And I think that that's a true sign of an artist versus just a working director. I know he says he was just doing mm -hmm. it because it was a job, but I don't, I don't buy that for a second. If you've ever watched any interviews with him, um, he is all in. When he's making a film, it's his vision. It's not just a job. Well, especially if he's, you know, if he's written it and directing it, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said to to not to not have to answer it like, just like all this stuff you're saying about like being this these sort of rebel and not having to deal with the studio interference and all that it it really activates like you can your brain is going to be 100 percent on it because it's it's your vision from start to finish mm -hmm. if you've written it and directed it um so like not compromising for anybody and i'm sure still being able to collaborate which it seems like he's a good collaborator so but uh, you know, it, I, I like it's it's such a winning combination. Like to to have that singular vision with, with and to be in it a hundred percent while you're making it, and then also to be able to work with people who want that you want. Um, you're gonna have a unique end product that you don't get from from the bigger money and 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 mm -hmm. people pleasers <laughs> that are doing this, right? You know, he he made kind of all the right moves with the production of this. I mean, he surrounded the crew himself with crew that were either friends or fellow classmates from USC, people he could trust, people he could count on. Um, and in the writing of it, it was so smart to just keep it to one location. You know, there's so many production elements he didn't have to really deal with. I mean, other than the opening of the movie, you're kind of all over L.A., you know, and, and he he shot the exterior of the police station in Venice. And then there's, you know, when it's funny when Austin Stoker is like in front of the police station and looking across the street. So like he's in Venice. And then when you cut to his point of view, he's looking at Ventura Boulevard, which is like <laughs> 30 minutes at least 40 minutes yeah. away. <laughs> it's like. Um, and then other shots are like in Hollywood. So it's really all over the place, but it cuts together like flawlessly. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't matter. But, you know, the majority of the movies in one place and you don't have to worry about moving the production across town and doing these, you know, driving shots and, and whatever. Um, it, it was really smart. He could just stay focused on what the story was. And, you know, and he was and like we we're saying, he's just learning and learning by <laughs> I'm sure by making some mistakes uh, along the way, but uh, it all, I mean, it really all comes together. I, I think it, I think the movie, you know, I think it just holds up so well. I, I love it. <laughs> well, and because you talked about the Hollywood new wave and the idea of taking risks and stuff like that, what I think is interesting is 
when we talk about assault um now we talk about it you know with this this feeling of yeah it's a it, almost a masterpiece in a way because of what he was able to do with the budget that he had there, i think though the reason why it was poorly received doesn't mean that it was a bad film when it came out. It was poorly received because when it came out, it didn't look or feel like the films that were coming out alongside mm-hmm. it from his classmates yeah. and his his mm-hmm. contemporaries. And that's why it didn't succeed. The reason why a lot of the reviewers, I don't know if you've ever looked into this, but a lot of the people who bashed it early on changed it, publicly changed their opinion about it because they were pre-programmed to say, it needs to look a certain way because it came out in this year. And when it didn't, they said, this is a, this is not a good film. It was only later that they said, well, I, we weren't prepared for it, basically. And that, I think that that's, that speaks volumes right there, is that it wasn't a bad film when it came out. It just wasn't the, the film people were expecting. Hmm. Yeah, well, it doesn't look anything like, you know, the big movies that year were Rocky, Taxi Driver, uh, Network. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel or look as big as those movies were. And it just, it, he had, Carpenter has a very distinct look. Um, like most, you know, auteur filmmakers do. They have their own stamp. You know, your Michael Manns, your Tarantinos. Uh, you know, they have, you can put it on for like one frame and you know that's a Carpenter movie. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I think I think there was a lot in 1976 that people weren't ready for for this movie. And a lot of it ties into the kind of Western theme, which was a yeah. <laughs> a huge angle that he was coming in with that, uh, you know, he modeled this. His script is really, you know, you brought up Night of the Living Dead uh, and it's modeled almost equally Night of the Living Dead and Rio Bravo, uh, which right. is another Howard Hawks film. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the world remaking Carpenter's films like, well, Carpenter's kind of starts off by remaking Howard Hawks and he'll go to it a number of times. Um, yep, absolutely. But the Western film had kind of just died out and I don't think audiences, maybe even subconsciously, were ready to like embrace the same themes of a Western. You know, they, I don't think they were ready to like reflect on it yet, which is what this kind of was doing. And he was so mm. aware of that. When you, when you hear interviews with him about Assault he wanted to make a Western and he said, there's no way people were going to go see it. There was no way he was going to get it financed. And that's why he made it in a contemporary setting. That was really smart Mm -hmm. on his part is he knew a Western, even though that that's what he wanted to make, it wasn't going to sell. And so he, he made a conscious decision to change it. And I, you know, that, that also is another nod to why this film is kind of a, a smart film because he was working with what he had in every way possible, not just production, but just a long-term effect of how will this film work? And uh, he read his audience, he read his investors, and he made those adjustments. He didn't say, no, 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 it has to be a Western because I want to make a Western. Mm -hmm. He still made a Western. That's all this is. It's a defending Mm -hmm. the Alamo film. Like, you know, that's, that's all it is. Well, wasn't it called the Anderson Alamo? originally yeah, yeah oh, really? exactly <laughs> yeah. well and he didn't change the name that was um I, that was like yeah a, that's a funny the story. producers or something like that that that's a totally different story which is really bizarre. it was the <clears throat> yeah it was if you pay close attention to the movie it's actually precinct nine yeah 
Yeah. And it's dis- in, in District 13. And there's actually a sign, I think, that says District 14, which is just an error. But the uh, the distributor, who was Erwin uh, uh, Yablens, who would, we'll talk about him and their relationship later, but uh, he's the one who said, no, you got to call it, you got to use 13, call it, dis- uh, call it Precinct 13, because it's just, it's a more, you know, it, it sounds better. And it's more, you know, like unlucky 13. Right. You know what, though? He wasn't wrong. I really dig the title. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a super, it's much catchier and, and it works. Yeah. And there's so, there's so many nods back to Howard Hawks. I mean, I'm not the biggest Howard Hawks and John Ford fan. There's, you know, some of the older Westerns that I love. I think some, a lot, most have aged pretty poorly but thematically Carpenter was so smart in the way this really is an excellent uh, model as a remake because it takes what works in those films and Rio Bravo is a legendary film uh, but it takes you know what worked there and really put a nice fresh spin on it a modern spin and and it just it works you know brilliantly And, and there's so many remakes you know, or even homage films today that just don't work. They don't get it. It's just doing like fan service and not actually coming from, from a real creative place. Mm-hmm. And Car- Carpenter didn't do that here. It, it just, it works on so many levels. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what do you think about, what do you, how do you feel about the cast? Cause I think it's a really interesting cast, not necessarily the greatest actors, but I don't know. They work really well in these roles. What do you guys think? Um, I was really, I was really happy with when we ended up with like the, your, our main heroes, because um, everyone was so distinct. And I just, I really, uh, I really thought like there, there's such a great contrast between them. So for like, so for Bishop and Wilson, that are so different, and I think both charming in their own ways as like you know, the lead heroes of this. Um, and then contrasting with Lee played by Lori Zimmer, um, who's just a, she, she's an odd character a little bit, but yeah. uh, I <laughs> yeah. just, I really like, it's always like the, it's these movies that I first get introduced to. And I f- like kind of fall in love with like a particular actor. And, and I'm like, Oh, what else is she in? And it's like, well, she did five movies and then that was it. I'm like, Oh my God, I would have loved to have seen like, a lot more from this person, but I'd never heard of the, her. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she's she's one of them. Like I I just really enjoyed her, and I thought uh, I don't know I, everyone we met along the way. Um, I don't know. I, I was really pleased with. He really knows how to like stock his films with interesting looking people, and also mm-hmm. like people with like a very very distinct energies. I think that they put forward. Yeah, I I would ag- I would agree. You know, a lot of his actors, you know, I always appreciate when actors look like real people. You know, they don't always have that movie star looks and movie star quality. Um, You know, even Kurt Russell, I think when he, especially in in Escape and The Thing, he doesn't like look like a movie star. You know, he does more in Big Trouble, uh, but it kind of works for that movie. Yeah. As does everything work. You know, everything's great in that movie. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, the rest of these guys, like Austin Austin Stoker was a big TV actor, and I think he would remain a you know very prevalent face in in seventies TV. Um, he was on a million different shows, but you know he looks like a real police officer from the seventies. And Darwin Jostin you know, looks like looks like a criminal, looks like a regular guy. And uh, you know Darwin Jostin, I remember seeing when I was very young in Battle for, Battle for the Planet of the Apes was I think the only other thing I've seen him in, other than uh, he's in the Fog, I think, as like a is he a coroner or a, some kind of medical guy. Oh, interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. He's he's in the fog for like one scene and I was I always wondered like why did they not you know, he's he's the co-lead of Assault. Why did he not stay with Carpenter? So I I don't know what the story is there, but I think they were also like neighbors or so or uh, he was neighbors with Austin Stoker. So I think that was how um he got, you know, ended up in the film, but uh mm. Uh, and then, yeah, Lori Zimmer is just, you know, she's fantastic. She's really, uh, the character of Lee is a complete nod to Howard Hawks, and, and she's uh, named after Lee Brackett, who is a, a screenwriter, and he would, he would use that name again in Halloween. Uh, but she's the typical Hawks-style, you know, tough lady who, you know, who, fight, who stands her ground and fights back alongside the John Wayne type. Got it. Uh, so with, with casting, here's here's my input, too, on this, is that I, I do enjoy the cast a lot. I thought it was really um, smart, and they all do a good job. What I did like, and it's um, obviously needs to be discussed, is that they kind of turned it on its heel for this era. You know, we're talking 1976, is to make your lead lieutenant of the at the police precinct uh you know black and then the criminal white was really bold mm-hmm. and and smart and i think that that was very empowering and i think that that was a nod to night of the living dead and i you know maybe maybe not but i think that that was a really smart choice because it made us just watch a movie and not have to play to stereotypes that's my yeah. problem with the remake is that in the remake it's there's this reversal where Ethan Hawke is the cop, you know, he's this clean cut white guy and uh, the the criminal is Lauren Fishburne. And I just I, I felt like um, that was a, that was one moment in the remake that they shouldn't have undone was I liked that about Assault was it was bold. It was it was smart and it was ambitious and they play mm-hmm. those parts so well that you don't even question it you're just like yeah, of course this is the lieutenant but when you think about when it was made um that was probably a risky move and it was great i think that that was another part of this film that has to be noted is that this was opening doors and opening opportunities for anybody any any you know person of color to be a lead actor and not be a support you know role i think that was smart of carpenter absolutely i mean if he was very you know it almost took race out of the whole equation because even yeah. when you look at the gang um you know you meet he he intentionally made it multiracial right when you see the gang leaders in the beginning yep. uh and then but if you look at the gang as they're you know from what you can see of them they mostly look like like white people well and i think that that's because he you know he was like a band member too you know he's in a band with a multiracial band i think he just that's 
that just wasn't an issue for him. And I think that that was smart yeah. that he cast his film like that. That just, those were the people in his life and that's, uh, he just moved on. He, he chose the right person for the role and just kept going. I think that was, um, pretty smart for him. Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. And you're, go ahead, David. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's good because I think, I think it's important when you do this kind of thing, like you're, you're trying to make like a, a normalcy out of these things, you know, um, and I think it's it's about recognizing wh- white, black, Latino, wh- whatever, like recognizing that. But then and then making sure like you're putting everyone in their proper in the proper roles, like if they're good enough to play. I mean, I think it's a conscious choice. I, I think like, you know, I don't think it's like he was trying to be colorblind necessarily, I think. But I think it is a good acknowledgement of like this lead is a black man who, from West L.A. Um you know, and then, right. and he's you know he's he's responsible for protecting all these people. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, and like that's like like you're saying that that's the way he lived his life. It's like it's like understanding you're in a world that is very diverse, and you know anyone could be anybody uh, here. The villains and the good guys are of all different types, all different stripes. And, yeah, uh, and, and I think that's of, that's what makes it timeless, right? That's what that's what makes this film timeless yeah. is that it, oh, it's yeah. not mm-hmm. dated that way. Yeah, it's yeah, believable absolutely. now. I mean, I think that that it just it ages well versus the remake where who are the um, criminals? They're they're Lawrence Fishburne and John Luguizamos, right? Like, I mean, oh, really? <laughs> come mm-hmm. on. Like, yep. there you go. I mean, where Ethan Hawke is our hero and, and Maria Bello is our hero or whatever. I mean, it's I don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, but it's that arguable. casting is great. You could argue that you could argue that like the criminals are like the more interesting characters, too. So I mean, oh, yeah. like, oh, for you know, sure. so I could see yeah. wanting to put like Lawrence Fishburne in like the cooler character, the 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 cooler, smarter, like not by the book guy. He's a criminal, you know. He's not. He doesn't. Fall. But like it does, like sort of. It it is a reinforcement of stereotypes um, when it really wasn't needed. So, um, but I, I you know so. You have to, you can acknowledge that as a flaw to the whole thing. I didn't see the remake. I have no idea, but you know, sometimes like the meteor parts do end up uh, being attached to other things that that were unintentional. Mm-hmm. Even here in the original, Tony Burton, uh, who's the other you know prisoner, yeah. isn't portrayed as like that bad of a of a guy. Yeah, yeah. you know, he's he's. Ba- essentially he's a, a good guy like the rest of them so yeah. uh, you know i think racially it it does a really it does a really really it's an important film in that respect yeah i, I watched this uh, interview with carpenter where he talked about his central character you know who later becomes the kurt russell character but i think that this actually is a a, a thread throughout all his character writing is that he said the one the one central focus that his character has is survival. So they don't really care uh, to help you or to not help you or to harm you or to not harm you. They're just there to survive. And I think that that is uh, assault in all those characters. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just there to survive and they're doing whatever it takes to do that. And I think that that's what makes these characters relatable is it's that they're not like, well, that's the good guy. He'll do the right thing. It's that, that that's the guy and he'll just do the thing that needs to be done because we're in a crazy situation mm-hmm. right now. That's relatable. Right. That's what makes this timeless. 
Yeah, it's a basic human instinct, you know, that he he encapsulates so well in, in at least all of his great films. Yeah. It's like the it's like if aliens came to Earth and they were all cap you know, they were all all the humans were bunkered together too and it's like well this guy's a criminal this guy's a murderer this guy's a drug dealer this guy's the, the local hero this guy is an innocent person and then but they all have this like understood thing of like well we got to defeat the aliens and save everybody so yeah exactly. all the all the stuff in the past doesn't matter in a sense you know You're, we're all the same yeah it's a great buddy film <laughs> you know <laughs> it's it's a it's it's an equalizer right you know it makes it say it doesn't matter and i love that in the ending of this film when he's like i'd be you know honored to walk out with you or whatever i think that that's a great moment yeah. because he's saying look i still have to do my job because there is all this this there's great scene too halfway through where the criminals can basically get away if they wanted And he's like, look, you know, I can't let you do that (laughs) because he's still the lieutenant. He's still the guy who has to oversee the precinct. But yet it's still a buddy film. Like there's this kind of like honorable uh, approach to defeating uh, the, the enemy towards everybody now where... Yes, we still know what we're here for, but we're gonna we're gonna unify. We're gonna do what we need to do. I I just love I love that whole approach. It's such a simple script, mm-hmm. but it's also so relatable. Well, and just going back to the to the script, um, I the pacing of this film and and the the tone of it more than the pacing right away you you get this kind of doomed sense for everybody um you know you see the you see austin stoker it's his uh, it's i I think it's the first day he's been promoted to lieutenant and he's basically just supposed to (laughs) cover this precinct on its final night before it closes and it's all like (laughs) You know, luckily for the for the sergeant who's or the lieutenant who's going out the door, like he gets out kind of just in time. But you see this intercutting between the the different storylines of, you know, the the gang members who right off the bat in the beginning, you know, are are uh, ambushed by the you know some version of the LAPD who massacres this gang, and then the leaders are are essentially going for revenge and they're going to, and you don't really know what they're going to do, but they're riding around and uh, what's that? Frank Doubleday. Is that his name? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the, um, the guy, the, the, what the white, you know, gang leader. Oh yeah. Frank Doubleday. Uh, who's also in this. Yeah. yeah Frank Doubleday. Who's also in escape from New York. Oh is, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. For sure. as, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's terrifying. <laughs> He's just, like they're they're driving around and he's just looking through the the sights of his rifle about who he's going to kill and then you know of course and we're we're also intercutting with this father and daughter who are driving um did you catch what the subtext of their the, the kind of what's going on with their storyline why they're even in the car no not really because i'm so focused on what happens because that's what becomes so controversial about this film you know this really yeah this scene is what what really um, stands out in and most people when they think about this Absolutely. movie. It's this scene, but no, no, explain it. I think that that's good to know. It's it's basically they are going, they're going to get their housekeeper out of her living situation, which is Anderson is the fictional area of town inside Los Angeles that um, you know is is supposed to be 
you know, a run, a run down, very violent neighborhood. And they're going into this neighborhood to go get their housekeeper so she can move in with them. And, and you don't know if it's like replacing, uh, you know, what, what, um, that character's wife, is she dead or she's left them or not around or they're divorced, but they've got a vacant room that they want the housekeeper to move in. So they're doing this totally like good deed of trying to, trying to get their housekeeper out of this terrible situation and they just pick the wrong place to stop <laughs> which is another another carpenter thing of like wrong place wrong time right yeah and we should we should focus on the scene for a second because you can't talk about Absolutely. assault yeah. without without the scene which i will say um in full disclosure i'm wearing right now as we speak my john carpenter i have a few john carpenter shirts but i'm wearing the john carpenter anthology shirt that i got when i saw him in concert and the very top it's a bunch of icons in a circle of every film he's ever made and the very top one is a target with an ice cream cone <laughs> for oh. salt on. So a couple years ago, that's John, all you need. <laughs> yeah, John Carpenter did. Um, he got his his band together. Uh, Cody, his son, who's a really talented um, musician as well, he got this band together and they performed a one time show on Halloween in downtown LA. Well, in Hollywood, really, and it was all the film score themes. And I flew out and I um, met up with our mutual friend, Jared, and we went and saw John Carpenter and his band perform all the themes, including Assault on Precinct 13. And I got this um, this shirt. And so I put it on today <laughs> as we were going to talk about this. I thought that would be funny. <laughs> oh, oh, that's fantastic. I was uh, very upset that I was unable to make it out with you guys. Uh, but uh, Jared was texting me little little videos uh, yeah it was from, great from what you guys were seeing oh <laughs> yeah. man it was amazing i hope if if they ever have concerts again and if he ever goes on tour i'm not i'm not missing it yeah i highly recommend it it was it was really incredible and and yeah when he did it so they had a giant screen projected behind him and they would play clips from the movies as they were doing the themes you know live it was really cool oh man well, I've got my assault on precinct uh, thirteen underoos on, so I'm, uh, that's that's for good luck. <laughs> so, so right over the crotch, you've got a target symbol with a ice cream cone. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about this scene because this scene. Uh, I mean, I didn't know about this scene the first time I saw. I, I saw. I actually just going way back for a second. I didn't see this movie until college. Uh, I didn't even hear about it until I got really into Tarantino uh, after Pulp Fiction. And in reading, you know, a lot about him, it kept coming up about, you know, his love for a, a lot of older films. But Assault on Precinct 13 was a big influence on Reservoir Dogs. And, um, and I started hearing about it then. And I saw it in college. And this scene... Uh, caught me. I mean, it is. It, it's shocking. It's, you don't often see uh, little kids getting murdered like this. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, was, Actually, yeah, we did it. We did an episode on Laser Graves a while back on um, a film called The Children. Have you ever seen that one or heard of it? No. No. Okay. So the children. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, the children is about these um, kids who go into like a toxic chemical and become zombies and start killing all of the parents. 
and the parents basically turn on them and kill all the children. And it is incredibly upsetting oh. and jarring, especially as a parent with children. I had a hard time watching it and I was like, wow, this is deeply unsettling. And this is the same scenario where we're just conditioned to not be prepared to see children die on screen, especially in a graphic way. And this is this was a huge deal um, when when this scene was was first revealed to test audiences. They were like this. No way can this fly. And um, somehow they managed to keep it in. And this is, you know, kind of the most iconic scene in the in the film, really. Well, and the girl is is played by Kim Richards, who was a Disney kid at the time. Oh, that would gosh. never happen now. Oh. <laughs> you know, she's doing escape escape from which mountain, and then turning around and doing assault on precinct thirteen, like back to back or or close to it. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, but this scene, you know, it the pacing of this particular scene, it's cut together so well. Because, you know, right from when you see the ice cream truck. Yeah. And, you know, he he sees the car drive past him. Then he sees it come back. It's like a shark circling him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the you know something's going to happen. You have this sense and feeling that, like, Something bad is going to happen to this dude. Yeah. But then we, we cut back to the, the father and daughter who pull over at the absolute worst place to go get, you know, the father's gotten lost. So he's got a call to get directions. And while he's doing that, she goes to the ice cream truck. And even the guy, the, the guy in the truck is like, doesn't he say like, we're closed? Like, I'm, I'm not open. Like, he tries yeah. to brush her off. But <laughs> and then. uh you know, just the way the mechanics of the the editing is so well done here and that, you know, she's there at the truck while the, the car is, is circling around. You know, she gets her ice cream, walks away. That's when the that's when it cuts back and then they basically pull him out of the truck. And, you know, this very uh, disturbing scene of putting the gun in his mouth just very slowly and not, you know, it's not over dramatic for sure. Yeah, and it, I think it's a great analogy of the, the shark uh, circling because they really are predators. Because basically when the LAPD or whatever, you know, just went out and slaughtered the gang, they put down this blood oath to just have an open call on the city of L.A. They were just going to everybody was now fair game to kill. And I think that that was really interesting because it's like a feeding frenzy. It's, it's a great analogy mm-hmm. because they circle for a while and then they find what they're going to attack and they attack it. And it's it's very jarring and it's very disturbing to see, but it's really effective. And and his death, the, the, the uh, I forget the character's name, but the ice cream truck uh, vendor, like his death is is disturbing, too, because they basically uh, Frank Doubleday knock, you know, punches him, knocks him to the ground and then shoots him in the back twice. Yeah. It's vicious, and um, uh, the thing is, these gang members, they don't say anything to anybody. I mean, they the only word you hear is when they take their little blood oath, right, after the in the beginning of the film. But they mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. no words. They're, they're all wordless killers. Um, there's no, so there's that means there's no reasoning with them. So they become these forces of nature and stuff, which I often talk about in these, like, these slasher films and murder fests that we cover every every so often. So it's... it's uh, there's no reasoning, talking with them, understanding them. It doesn't matter. All they are are, are killers. Um, and then we find Michael out Myers. more about that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, um, it's uh, it's it's pretty scary. So 
and you don't you don't you really don't know what's going to happen and you feel that tension when the girl's walking back up and she just says the most innocent thing about her ice cream cone and then it's uh, <laughs> just a visual like a ter- terrible visual with blood splatter and the ice cream splatter on her and she falls and, and then every and the two of them are just dead now like that's that's crazy it was yeah it was not like that i mean it's it's so fast yeah and that's it right that that's the the idea that they don't say a word they just kill without reason and what's the follow-up to to assault it's it's halloween i mean that is you could put the the michael myers mask on any one of these people and they wouldn't say a word they would just walk around the city killing because that is this is like the foundation of that character right here. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and, it, and the, the the moment of it that that really just like stuck in my memory was was how fast like you know when she comes up and says you know hey I wanted a vanilla swirl like he immediately turns and just shoots her he doesn't turn look at her think about it and then shoot her he right. just like it's like one motion almost yeah you know so there's no, he's just doing it it didn't matter who it was. Uh, and it was, you know, David, having just seen it now, how did that, how did you feel <laughs> about that scene? How, how disturbing was it for you? I mean, it was, it was unpleasant to watch. I, I kind of prepared myself for it in a, in a sense that I wasn't sure like where this, the storyline was going to go. And I was like, oh, are they both going to end up at the police station? And then once she was out on her own, I was like, I, I thought maybe. Like, oh, this is it. Like, she's not going to... Or, like, at least she'd be injured or something. Um, the vi- actual visual of it, though, was, like... Was still... Sh- like, even though I was trying to prepare myself for whatever. Um, just getting shot, like, in the chest. is A really crazy image. You don't you don't really do that on in movies. Uh, uh, that Yeah, especially that. then. I mean, that was so jarring. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I didn't... I... I was less disturbed by it only because I kind of expected to be getting into some weird shit. It's, it's John Carpenter. It's not going to be, it's not going to be like a lot of different movies. So, um, yeah, but yeah, it was, it was a mix of emotions at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that this scene is really like, this is where John Carpenter really makes his mark. I mean, he was, it's a daring move for essentially a essentially a first time filmmaker, you know, on on a national level, uh, you know, to do something like this is uh, it's a lot, and and it didn't. I think it got initially it got an X rating because of this. Yeah, I could believe it. He knew though what he was making because when he set out to make this. He intentionally tried to make an exploitation film. Like those were the films mm-hmm. that he was watching. Those were the films that he knew he could make on this budget. And he knew he could take risks that way. So it, I think in his mind, this wasn't too out there. Because if you watch any of the films from the 70s that were these types of films, um, maybe it wouldn't have been like this. But it also there would have been scenes that were equally as upsetting and so I don't think that he thought this film was ever going to go beyond th- that realm of, of B movie exploitation. So he had mm-hmm. nothing to, he had nothing to lose, I guess. Like let's make this as gritty as possible. Yeah. Well, and the ballsiest thing that he did was 
So when the movie's cut and done, and he sends it to the MPAA for a rating, they give it an X because, you know, they give it, or, or they're going to give it an X because of this scene. So he cuts the whole scene out and sends it back to them. They let it go. And then the version he gives to the theaters is the one with the scene intact. <laughs> so he totally just, he just completely went around the MPAA and he was expecting to get, you know, some kind of call, letter, you know, fine for it and nothing. It just got like completely overlooked and they, I don't know when they even realized that that happened, but it was certainly too late. Yeah. yeah There's an interview with him where um, the the guy asks him, so if you could do a director's cut of Assault, what would it look like? And he laughs and looks at him kind of crazy and says, this is the director's cut. <laughs> 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 that's funny yeah the, the the his best films are like there is no other version of it yeah but but you i think you're right that I, that's i think that's what i was missing is like that scene very specifically is is so out there in terms of like that's that's what you put in a b movie that's what you put in these exploitation movies that and the the whole movie is an that's exploitation true. movie where just yeah. sort of like mindless violence and and murder and stuff and and uh, you know so it's but I, it's not it's not too graphic. But that particular scene is you know above and beyond like what you'd put in like a you know a western, <laughs> a western right kind yeah. of thing. So yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. That's that's I love that he went around the MPAA. That's that's awesome. That's <laughs> yeah, great. It's, yeah. I, I mean, it is. That's he's the rebels rebel. Yeah. You yeah. know who else would do that? Good for him. <laughs> Martin West, who who is the actor who plays the father. Eventually, you know, he's following these this gang the whole rest of the day because when you see them again, he's chasing them and it's nighttime already and is, you know, he'll, he'll gun down uh, Frank Doubleday and then that's what the gang then turns around and chases him and that is what leads to the police station. So, yeah, it's you know, such, such a <laughs> poor great Austin device. Stoker had nothing to do with this. <laughs> that is such a, a simple and brilliant you know, like screenwriting device. Like that's all you had to do was just vigilante justice. Right. I mean, that's so simple. Mm-hmm. I just don't, don't make it convoluted. Yeah. Straightforward. And you like, certainly can identify with, Oh, go ahead, David. No, straightforward. Like, you know, he, he's so overwrought with emotion that the, uh, the ice cream man lives long enough to tell him where the gun is hidden in the, uh, <laughs> in the ice cream yeah. truck that that's his mission. And I mean that, that shot, um, on the car of the headlight and the chase going on for 30, 40 seconds, knowing that like in this meantime, he's been chasing these guys down. That's such a great, that's a great shot. I really like that, that shot, um, the headlight shot uh, yeah. in it. And uh, yeah, it just, and then as soon as he gets to the, the precinct, he's useless. He can't even, he can't even yeah. tell him why anything's happening. He's in, he's so in he's, shock. Yeah. He served his purpose. Yeah, he he he's yeah, the well, reason, and, and then and then that's it. There's nothing else you can do with him. I love that. Yeah, he's essentially out of the movie. I mean, he becomes Barbara from Night of the Living Dead, yeah. except uh, Night of the Living Dead. She kind of does come around at the end, whereas he doesn't. He's just completely in shock and useless. And it's amazing he even survives this onslaught at the at the precinct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, you know, I, I love the, how he used. He was so smart in that he wrote into it that 
you know, they 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 attack the so the gang attacks the precinct, and you have these great scenes of these just gunfire like raining down on these characters and the, and the glass shattering and and it's all with silencers and these guys whatever damage they're doing on the outside of the precinct they're cleaning it up as they as they do it so yeah. if anyone gets killed outside they run up and drag the body away if there's a car that's been shot up they drive it out of there or or roll it out of there so that anyone driving by wouldn't notice Nick nobody would know what's happening the siege is happening. <laughs> so, I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's very methodical because that goes back to the beginning of the film when they talk about the blood oath is whatever it takes, they're going to, you know, come down on on the their villains, their, their people that they have taken the blood oath out on. And I think that that's what's really amazing is they're not just being irrational in the moment. They have a vision. They have a, a plan. And uh, that doesn't get mm-hmm. seen very often with, like, gang movies at all, ever. Yeah, we, we don't get any scenes where we cut back to the gang and they're talking about their plan and they have, you know, different characters. You know, you only see the four leaders in the beginning. And then it's all, it's like, I guess it's kind of similar to, like, xenomorphs, that they're all, like, the one doesn't matter. It's all for the greater purpose. Right. Yeah, I think that's it because you don't. Yeah, you don't have that like intriguing main villain to be like the the counter to everything or anything like that. It doesn't matter. They're they're all of one mind, uh, which makes them an even spook. It's such a spookier threat. Um, which makes it Night of the Living Dead, right? I mean, that yeah. it, that's what essentially it exactly. Is. Yeah, yeah. there. It's so it's so interesting how it just bounces back and forth between this you know this call back to Night of the Living Dead and the call back to Rio Bravo. Right. It's who would have thought to mash up those two things? Wait. Only one person, Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, Johnny C. <laughs> yeah. You know the the whole the whole siege is so well done, and you really you get to know, you know without you don't really find out much about the backstory of any of these characters, but you can identify with them, you know, with the plight that they're in. Like you, you really can sympathize for them. Well, and he separates them really well too, where they're not just all the Mm -hmm. same, the same character. They do have distinct personalities, which I appreciate because usually Mm -hmm. in low budget films, they're all just kind of the same version of each other. This one, it's clear that they all had very separate backgrounds and that they play to those backgrounds Mm -hmm. i I liked that a lot like i i would have never confused one character with the other in this film yeah oh you know we didn't talk about is how the prisoners even get there so the the third kind of the third storyline that's going on is the you know these prisoners are being transferred uh, or transported from one you know one prison to another like all the way across town one of them is sick, so they stop and they have to pull over into Precinct 9 slash 13. <laughs> um, and that's how, you know, our other characters, uh, you know, Darwin Jostin and, and uh, Tony Burton get there. And we have Charles Cyphers. We have, we've got a couple of uh, familiar Carpenter faces here with Charles Cyphers and uh, Nancy Loomis. That's right. Nancy, who's in uh, so many of uh, all. She was in like six of his movies or something like that right <laughs> yeah well i th- i think he's in more nancy loomis is in this halloween halloween 2 and the fog and i think that's it 
Oh yeah. Um, I guess she plays a different. Character but Cyphers is in in uh, season of the witch. But. Yeah. Well, she's she's uh oh right 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 and she's in Halloween three. But that's I don't know. Do we consider Halloween three a Carpenter movie? Well, yeah. Carpenter still worked on the score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still part of the franchise, I guess. You're right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, Cyphers was in. Let's see. He's in this. He's in Halloween. Halloween two. The Fog. Escape from New York. I want to say that might be it. After that, maybe there's one later that he's in. But um, you know, the Carpenter players are here, and. Uh, you know, I was again the first time I saw this. I was so surprised that first attack when, when the you know m- the majority of the cops are wiped out of the equation like immediately. Yeah, and Cyphers is one of them. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that. I thought I thought I thought these I thought there'd be a bigger cast you know holding down the fort initially, um, but they yeah. all cut like half of them just got wiped out, and I was like, oh no, there's only like four people who can handle themselves now. It's it's. But I mean, that's the economy of it all. So I mean, uh, of like shooting this thing. So, um, but yeah, some some vicious just deaths, just cutting people down unexpectedly. Um, the, the 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 terror continues outside the precinct. It makes it it makes it more realistic, though. I think. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and well, it starts out as what? It's five, you know, either cops or guards, um, three convicts, and two secretaries. And then very quickly, it's down to one cop, two convicts, and the two secretaries. Like, <laughs> right. like boom, like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. And then it's like, it, and then it becomes like, who might actually survive? Because then there's a few waves of violence. And maybe not all of our main characters are going to make it to the end. You got <laughs> to right. pick, you got to draw a straw. You got you to gotta pick one. Did you, did you... Did you um, did you have bets the first time you saw it? Like who was going to make it out the first time? Who would survive? Yeah, theories? when they decide that they're going to divide and conquer and be like, well, we have to make a go for it, you know. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, the first time I saw it too, I, I kind of just had this doom ending in mind where, you know, mm-hmm. I, I guess because it's based on Night of the Living Dead or at least inspired by, and that ending is so sad and dramatic you know that you Mm -hmm. you get through the whole damn night with this with these people and then it just ends in tragedy that i kind of expected that and it doesn't turn out that way which is nice i i'll take that (laughs) yeah it's uh, well you do get you get an occasional kind of sort of happy ending with carpenter that does happen here and there (laughs) yeah (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say it's happy. You know, they just, they survived. You know, sometimes sometimes the heroes survive. Let me word it that way. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they don't. Or maybe you just don't know. Yeah. Sometimes they end up in I, an insane asylum. Yeah. You're out in the freezing cold, you know, Arctic uh, winter and you don't know what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the just the production real quick. So we talked about how uh, this was a hundred thousand dollar budget, and you know he used every dollar and used it wisely. Uh, he they they actually shot over twenty days, so this is a very quick shoot. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and one of those days, they actually shot for twenty four hours straight. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> oh. 
which is you could you could never do that now with uh, you know whatever union regulations or just you know human decency <laughs> you couldn't do that right. But, uh, but uh, you know he's talked about how uh, at the end of that night just how much that took out of everybody that um, you know and I think they were shooting part of the siege sequences at that point it was just it was just a lot it, it's hard. Yet at the uh, same time, he, overnighters are hard anyway. But yeah, but at the same time, he describes this film as being one of his favorite films he's ever made, which is really interesting too. And I could see that because you know when you first get into any kind of artistic endeavor, and you have any amount of success, that's always going to be the special one for you because maybe you'll have a more successful project down the road, but this will be the one that uh, validated that this is what you should be doing. So even though they were pulling these crazy hours uh, and it was really intense, it's no surprise to me that he would um, say that this is one of his favorite memories and one of his favorite films, because this, I think, gave him the confidence to say, yep, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to do with my life. Well, I mean, it's really this and Halloween are, are the two movies maybe escape from New York a little bit where he didn't have a studio looking down, you know, over his shoulder and really pressuring him. So I could imagine that he had probably had the most fun on these movies and he could be the most, you know, at his creative best. Now let's talk about one of the best parts of this movie, the score. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) The unforgettable the unforgettable John Carpenter simplistic score yeah. to go with his simplistic story elements. It's like he really only has like two tracks on this on this score, doesn't he? Yeah, and within those two tracks, there's like two notes. Da 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 da. Yeah, I mean it's so so simple, so effective. It's it's really brilliant. Yeah, and and he would do the same thing on Halloween, where he, I think he had a few different ones that he would just use over and over and over. But it it's so effective. It it's it's just brilliant. It, it works so well. I mean, he had the the main theme, and then you've got the like kind of uh, lighter theme, which is it called? Is it called? It, well, you've got it at the end, but it, I feel, I want to say it's called like uh, Lee's theme, maybe something like that. Yeah, um, well, he only did, uh, you know, three to five pieces of music that he actually made, like, fully realized. And then he did a couple fillers, which, you know, all composers do that. They have, like, their main themes Mm. that they focus on. And then they do the ambient kind of fillers and give them to directors and say, we'll just throw this wherever it works. And that's how this, this score really works is there isn't a lot to it. And when you start to look into the history of of the score itself, which is really influential to a lot of composers, uh, it's not a surprise that there, there's not. There, he didn't spend a whole lot of time, and there's there's not uh, many themes or cues that, that are actually involved in this, but it feels like it. Like with everything he does, he takes very little, and he stretches it throughout as much as humanly possible. Yeah. What's uh? What are your what? Is, what's some of your favorite Carpenter tracks? For from all his from over over the course of his films, what what are your what are your top ones? Holy cow, that's tough. Well, I mean, Halloween's gonna obviously be like that's that five four time signature is is you know how can you not love that Big Trouble? Everybody loves Big Trouble. Um, oh yeah, 
the pork chop express song yeah i love that's yeah yeah it's great i mean but i would say assault for me is like it's like a the i cannot believe i we did not plan this but it couldn't have worked out better is that the shark analogy of circling around it feels like a jaws scene for a gang movie is like da 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 that you know it's like something bad is about to happen something is mm. is is, mm-hmm. is creeping up on you and this music I'll, I'll go into it a little bit um just because this is kind of where where i thrive is the the film scores of movies is that he wrote this in three days which is okay yeah that's not a shock because there's not a lot to it <laughs> but but he wrote it and then he performed it with his longtime collaborator, Tommy Lee Wallace, who has done anything and everything in his films. They did it together. It's all synth based. Um, despite what people think that that little hi-hat drum thing that goes on, that's not a drum machine. That's actually still built into the synths, too. And like like I mentioned, you know, he only had you know, two main themes and about five real cues. And then all the rest were just fillers. He did it all on this, um, synthesizer, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it, it's a Moog or a Mog, but it's this really awesome seventies device where you can change all the settings to, to hold down a key and, and change the oscillation and everything. And, he comes up with this really brilliant score that's so simple. And his inspiration behind it was kind of two things. One, the, the Dirty Harry score, which is interesting. And then this one, mm. this one blew me away. The Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. And he basically merged those two to come up with the, the theme for Assault on Precinct 13, which has gone down as like, instantly identifiable and i will tell you from personal experience when i saw him perform it live as soon as that like drum click starts people lost their mind because we all knew what was coming i mean how many songs can you tell from a hi-hat click for two seconds you know Mm -hmm. what it is and and in this case you do know what it is so this the score even though it was really influential, didn't even get a proper release until 2003 is when it finally got put out. Yeah, that's crazy. I know it's, it's crazy, pretty remarkable. And then I watched some interviews on, uh, you know, John Carpenter talking about this and how he created it and what his influences were. And uh, one of the influences, actually the main influence beyond the two songs that I just mentioned were a uh, memory that he had when he was eight years old. And he saw Forbidden Planet and Forbidden Planet, which came out in like 56 or something like that, was the first mm-hmm. real film to use an all electronic score. And wow, have you ever I mean, I'm sure you've seen the movie, maybe not thought about the score very yeah. much, but that score is brilliant. And I watched because I went down the rabbit hole like I always do. I went on YouTube mm-hmm. and I watched a professor of music use analog um, devices to try and recreate the score from Forbidden Planet and the way in which it was created before like synthesizers and everything was pretty amazing and so what happened is young John Carpenter watched this and heard it and it stuck with him and he realized that you 
If you couldn't afford an orchestra, which is what was expected at the time, you could use synthesizers and make the score feel really big and really like a major production. And he stuck with that, which became, in addition to his directing, I would say as as an equal legacy is uh, him as a composer. And so Assault is really, I mean, Dark Star does have a cool score, but Assault is really like, you know it when you hear it. And there's no doubt that this oh, yeah. this film would not be the same film without the score. I mean, it, this is really brilliant. This is a uh, genius, you know, on display right here, in my opinion. I have a- yeah, to to further the, you know, the the com- the Jaws comparison here, the shark comparison, like this is, is th- this score is as important to the film as, uh, you know, John Williams score is for Jaws. Like it, it really is. It's got the same parallel. Yeah. I have a question. So when you see him performing this live, is it a full orchestra then? Like, is this, do these, do these themes and everything, do they just become these giant or like orchestrated scores and stuff like that? Or is it no, really not simple? at all. No, he keeps it really basic. He had a drummer, bass player, guitarist, and then he was on lead keyboards. And then Cody, his son, who's like a really amazing pianist was on the other mm-hmm. keyboards and they did not fluff it up at all. I mean, it is really oh, wow. what you hear is what you see. However, seeing it and feeling it go through your body live, you're like, whoa, <laughs> this is really cool. Oh, man. Yeah, it's really huh. amazing. And I, um, this is a side little fun fact for myself is um, for my score that I did for the Scary Stories documentary as an homage to John Carpenter and Assault uh, on Precinct 13, there's a on track number eight for my score for scary stories. I did this song called uh, "Under the Hearth Rock," and it starts with the drum clicks, and that's it's totally an homage to this oh, to this nice. film score. <laughs> so I'm giving that away here. <laughs> yeah, but if you were to go listen to that track, the 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 whole first couple seconds is absolutely just me paying respect to John Carpenter because I wouldn't be where I'm at without being oh, inspired awesome. by him. Absolutely. Sure. That's so great. That, that's, oh man, that's, uh, that's really cool that you did that. And uh, I'm also very, even more jealous now that I, I missed that concert. <laughs> We're just going to have to have Carpenter come to Recon Cinema Studios for a private, private concert just for us. He'll do it. Yeah. Just for sweet thunder. <laughs> when yeah. we do the, when we do the ribbon cutting for the Charles Cipher's wing, maybe he can perform like, yeah. at, the, at the ribbon cutting. He'll be our. He'd have to. He'll, I mean, they're yeah. they've got to be best friends. He'll be they our keynote. Spe- he'll be our keynote speaker. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, so the uh, the movie comes out November third, nineteen seventy six. Not much fanfare. Um, you know, not amazing reviews like we talked about. The, the the world wasn't ready for Assault on Precinct 13 yet. Uh, you know, I box office numbers, I had a hard time finding yeah. some real details there. I know it didn't do, you know, didn't do that much business. But it wasn't until after when it hit the festival circuit in, in Europe. I think the Edinburgh Film Festival and the London Film Festival, like, that's where they're the ones who fell in love with the movie. And... <laughs> You know, it was it was Europe falling in love with it, which motivated America to kind of take a, another look at it, which really just built over time. It didn't have like 
you know, an explosion a few years later where it was suddenly popular. But it was this it was this slow build throughout the 80s and into the 90s for really our generation and maybe a little bit older than us who who really appreciated the film. Right. Yeah. I think once once you have an audience um, or a critic, really, which was uh, what happened, once you have a critic vouching for it and saying, you guys don't get it, this is brilliant, everybody's like, what What don't we get? And then they scramble to try and right. make up, you know, lost time and go, no, 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 we totally get it. You know, and I think that's what happened with this, as did happen with many of his films, is that people kind of dissed on him at first. And then once a couple people said, no, 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 you don't get it, they went back and said, oh, you're right. And this was really, you know, considering this was his first real major film, uh, that's the story of his career. <laughs> I mean, all the way through Ghost of Mars, I, you know, I love that film, too. But that was, you know, dissed right away, too. And, and then later people were like, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it's not as bad as we thought it was. <laughs> that's just John Carpenter's movies. Yeah. Well, it was it was really like Halloween and Escape from New York were the only ones. And I'm not sure about Starman and Christine. I have to look back. But, you know, those ones were the first. I mean, of course, Halloween was the biggest hit. I mean, that was huge, huge. And I think part of that that success was what, you know, maybe blocked the, the relook at Assault, you know, because people were so into just what was happening with Halloween and the after effect that that caused. Um but yeah, most of Carpenter's movies, you're right, were just not uh, not well received initially, but but built over time. Starman, especially, he that was a huge flop. I mean, he thought that that was the end of his career when that came out. That's how bad that one was. Mm-hmm. I would say the thing yeah, maybe yeah. got some good attention when it came out, and um, I don't know, maybe they live. I think was pretty well received too, but like Prince of Darkness or you know, in the mouth of madness, village of the damned, especially, although that's kind of for good reason. Um, vampires, all those got dissed right when they came out. They just, they just didn't stick. Yeah, sort of big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and it influenced a whole generation, you know, Quentin Tarantino, obviously, uh, you know, goes back to not only this movie with Carpenter, but the thing as well. I mean, hateful eight is a, at its core is a remake of the thing on on several levels um to nowhere near the success of the thing but uh creatively in my opinion um and uh and Edgar Wright is another one who you know you look at Shaun of the Dead you, like you you have to see the influence of Assault on Precinct 13 <laughs> yeah. in Shaun of the Dead yeah for sure <laughs> different ending <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, different tone, different tone, but same, same kind of uh, inten- or similar like intensity. So, um, where do you guys? So, David, let's start with you. Yeah, of the Carpenter movies that that you've seen, where do you? Where does this one hold up for you? Oh, let's see. Of the ones I've seen, which are more than I th- thought. Um, yeah, one, two, three, four. I think you've seen a lot of them. I think you've seen most of his bigger films. At yeah, least. most of the bigger films. There's a couple I have to still see. Um, yeah, this is this is in the upper echelon of of, of the list. Um, I really enjoy it. I, I thought it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it. I think it holds up very well. I think this is really enjoyable. The cast is fantastic. Um, I mean, and 
I guess it could feel like a first, you know, big film. Um, but I, I, I don't. I mean, I think the, the his core his core talent was there. I mean, he was making making films for years as a young man. So I mean, he knew what he was doing. I think when when he came to this. So I don't know. I mean, this is a uh, this was a lot of fun. I, I yeah, top top top. I guess top four for me in the top four Carpenter films. Sure, yeah. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I really um, like I really like all his other movies too, though. So, shoot, it's hard. I I think it's, but it's among the the best of his stuff. I think. Yeah. For me. Uh, and how many of of our Jack Burton scale, which is our our scale from one to thirteen, about how many, right. you know, how much we, uh, you know, think of the film from today's perspective? Where where do you rank it there? Mm. Yeah, um, if I'm putting it on the Burton scale, <laughs> one to thirteen, it's hard because it's like, how do I weigh? His, do I weigh his other movies against it as well? I don't know. Uh, no, it, just on its own merit. On its own merit. Yeah, this is great. This is a good one. This is a, a thirteen, like a, an eight and a half. Eight and a half. There, I'm. I, I end up eight and a half. I end okay. up. I end up on like an eight and a half or a nine usually for movies. I I just <laughs> generally like. You know, it's hard to fall in love. Is is all I'm saying. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Not, I guess maybe uh, let's say nine. Nine out of thirteen. Okay. Copy. If we keep talking, will you ratchet that up to a 9.5? Keep going. Let's see. <laughs> Take the score into consideration. <laughs> what about you, EK? <laughs> EK, where do, you, where do you think? Where does it rank both on your Carpenter scale and then our Jack Burton meter? Carpenter scale, you know, that's really tough because he's one of the few directors where I don't say this is the definitive best film he's ever done. It's kind of like there's a grouping where it's like a and B squad for me and a squad is kind of all on the same level. And B squad is kind of all on the same level. If that makes any sense at all. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. yeah, he is a very difficult director because he's so consistent that I don't say like, Oh yeah, this was his masterpiece. Cause it wasn't, um, escape from New York is always going to be my favorite film for nostalgic reasons because I had it on, you know, a recorded tape that my dad brought me as a kid. And I watched it over and over and over every single day. Big Trouble in Little China is going to be one of my favorite films because I also watched it constantly. However, are those as good of films as Assault? I don't know. I, I think um, it ranks, I would agree, top four, top five for sure. Like, because it's so yeah. solid. It's so good for what it is. Now, as far as the scale is concerned, if you gave a fresh filmmaker who had only done a a student film, keep that in mind, a student film, you gave him $100,000 and said, make a feature film, and they made Assault with $100,000 and no experience, that's that's a big accomplishment. So for that reason alone... Yeah, it's a 10 or an 11 easily because I don't know too many directors who have never done anything of real merit on $100,000 and could pull this kind of film that is we're still talking about this many years later um, and it's still being replicated. It's that's not talking about just the film, the score, the acting, everything. Um, That is a major achievement that I think often gets overlooked is 
Um, this was done on very little and done very, very well. Um, big move for mm-hmm. big move for a young filmmaker. Yeah, uh, I, I think you, you summed it up very, very nicely there. I'm going to echo those thoughts and <laughs> my ratings are going to be basically the same as yours. This is probably I'm going to say this is number five on the Carpenter scale for me. Uh, I would probably go for me personally, the thing number one, then Halloween, then Big Trouble, then Escape, and then uh, Assault on Precinct 13. But all those five are like really close. I mean, for me, I think the thing is like a step ahead and then the rest are all floating right around that same level. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all just so strong. And uh, yeah, I would also give it an 11. I mean, it's, it's such a strong first film and it just, I think it holds up. Like looking at it now, it's another, yeah, maybe they're, you know, maybe the hairstyles are, are seventies, but beyond that, the story itself, you know, feels like you can put it in, drop it in almost any time period. And, and the, the, the core of the story works. Um, And that's, you know, I think that's really what we're looking at on this show is like, does it work mm-hmm. this many years later? And I feel like this one absolutely does. Yeah. And as a young filmmaker, yeah. if you were to take all major filmmakers who have become, you know, icons in, in Hollywood and say, well, what is their first movie like? Their first real movie, not their first student film, but their first real movie. Um, mm-hmm. Assault is a uh, strong and bold statement that is unapologetic. It's saying, I'm going to make the film I'm going to make, yeah. and you will learn to love it. <laughs> I'm not going to grovel. I'm going to make you love it because it's that good. And I, I'm not giving it more credit. Yeah. I'm just calling it as I see it. And Assault is a very competent, well-made film from an inexperienced filmmaker with no money. Yeah, and a lot of like first films by big directors, like what you see is promise and potential. And maybe some really good scenes, but the movie overall, like, doesn't necessarily work. Like, who's that knocking on my door from Scorsese, like, doesn't blow me away. Um, you know, Coppola's first film, a lot of these guys. Uh, but but this one just really, I think, really holds up on its own. And and, and it's the creation of his, uh, the, the JCU, the uh, John, or the, the CCU, let me correct that. The Carpenter Cinematic Universe. <laughs> we, I, well, I started to let go of the Cinematic Universe joke, but I'm bringing that back now. Bring so. it back. <laughs> and uh, you know, and there's a big there's a big fallout, you know, from this movie for Carpenter, all in a good way. It starts a relationship with Erwin Yablins, who would you know produce the the Halloween franchise, which would be his biggest film um you know at least for for a while and uh he you know he starts building his core group of actors uh this is the first time he works with deborah hill who was the script supervisor on this film and she would be uh, you know the films he made with deborah hill are some of his with her producing are some of his best films i think that was that was a very important relationship in his career and creatively, um, or, or she helped allow him his creative freedom. Um, and, you know, even even uh, one after effect is Donald Pleasance does Halloween because his daughter liked Assault on Precinct 13 so yeah. much. <laughs> that's, that's a great fun fact, wow. isn't it? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. 
So, you know, this is when you look at Halloween success, you have to also look back like we were talking about earlier at Assault and and even further back to Dark Star. So to to kind of track that path of how he got there. But, um, you know, for those that for anyone who's listening and hasn't seen it, stop what you're doing. Watch the film. It's it's, uh, you know, best to watch uh, late at night. Another good one for that uh you know, I don't think this is as fun during the day, but, um, you know, you get the real spirit of the film. Um, but, yeah, give it a shot. And if you haven't seen it in a while, I would uh, I would definitely check it out uh, as soon as you can. Uh, guys, what do I – so, okay, what do I see next then? Do I see The Fog, Starman, or Prince well, of you, Darkness? Which, which Well, you've which seen Halloween. See? Are you going to go in chronological order or um – I, I'm all over the place with what I've seen, so I'm just like, what would be the next one I should watch? Uh, the f- like filling in the gaps. Yeah. yeah, the fog is really, um, it's pretty well done too. Starman, I, I, I wouldn't do that before some of the others. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would recommend the fog. Um, have you seen In the Mouth of Madness? No, that's I, I really do think that that's probably one of his most underrated and strongest films. It's so well acted and it's really, mm-hmm. really well done. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant film and I, I go back to that one constantly. I, I, it's never gotten old and it gets better every time I watch it. I would highly recommend that one. If I was to say, you know, knock off the, the basics, um, escape the thing, Halloween, mm-hmm. all those, mm-hmm. if you're going to start going yeah. into the second tier level, uh, in the mouth of madness yeah. would be my number one choice. I, that's it's such a good movie. Got it. Okay, that's I, that's where yeah. that's where I'm, that's where I'm at with his movies. I think I'm in tier two. But and I've seen Vampires and Escape yeah, from I L.A. Think... as well. So that, those are uh, those are done. <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would I would say the fog and yeah, it depends if you just want to see kind of the. Uh, you know that the, the w- direction his career went you just fill in the gaps chronologically which would be the fog star man christine i don't know if you've seen, seen christine um they live uh should be seen as well always but quality wise uh in the mouth of madness for sure is it's definitely his best post you know post they live i i, I would say that's his best w- would you ek yeah for sure i mean he followed up they live with the um, chevy chase memoirs of an invisible man uh. which which i just watched mm. you know um the other day i revisited that and it just doesn't hold up the way his other films do you know he does body bags after that um then in the mouth of madness oh, yeah uh, village of the damned escape from la vampires um ghost of mars yeah there there's this like second version of his career and none of those are even to the kind of on the level of in the mouth of madness that is legit a, like a really good movie it's just so well done great Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll probably knock out the fog and in the mouth of madness then. Uh, Excellent. Coming up. Well, there's your homework. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm in. I'm gonna sign up. I'm gonna sign up for C- Carpenter House. Like it's like Columbia House, but they just send you Carpenter movies. <laughs> <laughs> if only they were a penny each. Yeah. <laughs> each one costs twenty five dollars. 
it was really fun to look back at Assault on Precinct 13. I guess that's a funny sentence to say um, because it's certainly not a fun film, but it was it was uh, it's nice to look back on Carpenter's career and and, um, especially the early stuff. That's just, you know, so much of that holds up so well. Uh, I I had a good time and, and I look forward. EK, I look forward to both the next time we can have you here. I know we've batted around some ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're talking maybe alligator-ish, but in <laughs> yeah. a different direction. G.I. Joe the movie. Oh, yeah. So there's, uh, we'll have our legal teams, you oh, know, boy. hash it sure. out. Yeah. And then... <laughs> um, but uh, I also, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to your next episode of Laser Graves. And, don't you know, guys, don't forget to check that out. Uh, you know, anywhere, um, you know, EK, you tell tell us where, where we can find you. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, you know, uh, Spotify, Podbean, Apple iTunes, all that kind of stuff. And then we're on Instagram at Laser Graves. And if you want to follow me, I'm at death at 33 RPM. And yeah, I'm, we're just chipping away. We're doing our, our 80s movies and, uh, you know, seeing what turns up. And I feel like every day... We discover a new movie we never knew existed, and we're like, "Hey, yeah, let's talk about that one." So it's, um, you know, it's it, there is there's never a shortage of weird movies to cover on a podcast. That's for sure. Can you uh, can, can you reveal anything you have coming down the pipeline anywhere, or anything you know in your mind, thinking what you might cover soon? We, yeah, I mean, we try and balance out between horror and sci-fi and sword and sorcery. So we've got all these random movies like Phoenix the Warrior, you know, uh, Wavelengths. That's another Tangerine Dream uh, score. It's great. Mm. We, we've all these ideas and I just have this long running list <laughs> and uh, it just kind of the, the moment hits us and, and we either go with it or we, we pass by it but man we we've got stacks of stuff we want to get to there's just not enough time at all you know you know how it is yeah totally hear that it's uh, well, well we'll stay tuned and we're, we're looking forward to catching uh, that episode and I just I just want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show it's always a great time having you here and and we really are looking forward to the next time you can make I it I love being here and talking with you guys it's so much fun <laughs> it's it's a blast <laughs> it, was, it was great it was great having you here again man I can't wait to have you back and thank you so much <laughs> and uh, don't forget to check out uh, you know check out our uh, social media on facebook uh twitter instagram we're at reconcinimation podcast uh always you can always find us on www.reconcinimation.com don't forget to uh give us a a rating and a review anywhere you find uh, our podcast uh, podbean stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, apple podcasts or itunes whatever it's called now (laughs) Uh, but check us out there and uh Quick shout out to uh, Curtis Moore. Thank you for the poster as usual. And EK, we always love your theme song and the the opening of the show. And, uh, you know, David, it's about that time. Uh, I hear we, uh, as a corporation, we just bought an ice cream truck. So I want to get down and check it out before uh, it hits the town. Perfect. (laughs) So uh, we will see you next. (laughs) We'll see you next time on Reconsinimation. Bye now. (laughs) 